Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is IAQ Radio. Indoor Air Quality Radio. The voice of the indoor air quality industry. With your host, Radio Joe Hughes and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotny. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day, everyone, and welcome to IAQ Radio Plus. We've got a great show for you today. We've got Mr. Tom Phillips coming to us from Davis, California. Company's called Healthy Buildings Research. And we're going to talk a little bit about what we're calling the heat is on, how climate change will affect IAQ, future-proofing buildings, and beyond energy efficiency. Before we get started, let's thank our sponsors. IAQ Radio Platinum Sponsor is John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. I also want to thank our gold sponsors, Particles Plus, Healthy Indoors Magazine, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, and AEML Inc. Laboratory. And, of course, our association sponsors, the Indoor Air Quality Association and the Restoration Industry Association. And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnick at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man with this week's IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Hello, everyone. Congratulations to Thomas Barnes, Greenville, North Carolina, who was first to identify Hollywood celebrity Mel Brooks as adding a fake 11th finger to his handprint at Los Angeles' famous TCL Chinese Theater. The IQ Radio trivia question for today, Friday, December 14, 2018, has been sponsored by Ideas, a solution chemistry company creating unique solutions to odor removal, surface cleaning, and decontamination problems. Here is today's trivia question. Name the controversial former NASA scientist considered to be the father of global warming theory. Back to you, Joe. Thank you, Cliff. Okay, so Tom Phillips is our guest today. He's a consultant on healthy, sustainable buildings in Davis, California. He spent over 35 years working at the intersection of research and policy addressing public health, pollution, and buildings, mainly at the California Air Resources Board, or what we'll call CARB. From 1985 to 2009, he designed and managed research contracts on human exposure to indoor and outdoor pollutants, ventilation, air cleaning, and building ventilation. He also produced health-based guidelines on indoor combustion pollutants and air cleaners. Tom has served as a technical advisor to national, state, and local agencies, non-governmental organizations, and private private firms on various IAQ issues, climate change adaptation, and green building programs for homes, schools, and offices. Since 2010, he has been the principal scientist at Healthy Building Research, where he has assessed IAQ research needs for net zero buildings, effective ways to prevent intrusion of outdoor pollutants, and ways to adapt and mitigate climate change and health impacts on the building sector. Welcome, Tom. Good morning, Joe and Cliff. Can you hear me? Yep, we can. Great. Cool. Uh, I like it. Good to have you. Yeah, that's a pretty interesting hat you got. <laughs> we'll send you an IAQ radio hat, too. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is from the uh, World Series uh, Dynasties of the Oakland A's back in the Blue Moon, Odom, and, and Reggie days. <laughs> Very cool. Those were the good old days there. Yeah. Anyway, Tom, let's go back to your time at CARB for a moment, the California Air Resources Board. Uh, we talked a little earlier, and I, I want you to talk to listeners a little bit about some of the things you're most proud of during your time at CARB. 
Uh, well, you know, so long ago, I can't really remember, Cliff. <laughs> uh, there's a lot, lot of things, but it was mainly a great team that we worked together in the research division and in the health program and the engineering folks uh, to some extent to address a lot of the major indoor issues, even though it was an outdoor air pollution agency. <laughs> uh, so it ranged from things like helping get tobacco smoke out of public buildings uh, and keeping ozone generators and uh, gas, uh, gas-fired, uh, unvented fireplaces out of homes, excuse me, um, and really pushing green buildings forward at the various sectors of state, uh, state buildings first, then schools, and then uh, homes, um, and getting formaldehyde out of composite wood. So I, I helped with all those things, I guess. Um, and so, um, and also some groundbreaking research that we funded and, and sometimes in collaboration with EPA. Um, so for example, we did the first set of uh, major activity pattern studies to document where adults and children spend their time in terms of in homes or in vehicles. And then EPA replicated that at the national level and so did Canada. So those were, so it was, it was fun being at the cutting edge. Uh, but then we tried to apply the research to, to make buildings and public health better. So. Sounds like it was an interesting career there. Uh, you know, one of the things I wasn't um, as aware of is, is the, the formaldehyde and composite products. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that? What, what came of that and, and, and has it, Moved from just California? Uh, you mean where it's at now or how it developed? Where are we now? Uh, well, last I heard, I think EPA was still bogged down or some or for some political or other, other reasons. But there was, I think, a, initially a lawsuit from uh, Sierra Club or NRDC or somebody that kind of forced them to implement our standard. Um, and then they wanted to tweak it some, and then CARB itself is doing periodic updates to the standards to to fill in some of the um, you know the get the gaps or, or and and uh, and so on, and and also maybe as the industry changes, they you know refine some of the, the specifics, um, and then um, but I think even before that, you know, there was a lot of green building uptake of those kinds of specifications. So, uh, you know, eventually I think because California is such a big market, it's going to, it tends to drive the national market anyway, is the general trend, I think. Okay. And what, what kind of things, uh, you know, looking back at your time at CARB, is there anything you wish you'd been able to do more uh, with or for, you know, um, Mm -hmm. Thing you wish you'd made more progress on while you were there? Well, with, with uh, 20, 20 or 20, 30 hindsight, I would probably say um, two things. One is more healthy home work. Uh, I think, you know, at least in the, in the research field, we knew early on from the Seattle Healthy Home pilot studies that in-home intervention to reduce asthma triggers was very cost-effective and very health-effective and could be integrated with, say, low-income weatherization programs where the practitioners were already in the home and could team up with trained um, community home, healthy home workers. Hmm. Uh, but we, I just couldn't get any traction at Cal EPA because they were focused on traditional outdoor air pollution issues. And the Department of Public Health was, you know, busy with um, social services and Medi-Cal and all that. Um, and I think California is still trying to get, you know, the waiver and approval to, to get reimbursement for those kind of in-home interventions for asthma. But some states, like in the Northeast, are doing it. Uh, so that was something that should have happened a lot sooner. Um, the other regret was that, I didn't push harder and work with uh, various stakeholder groups to push on climate change adaptation because we knew back in the 80s that it was going to be a big problem and the data just keep piling up. Um, so, uh, you know, it's hard for one one person or one group in any agency 
to uh, to counter policy or to 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 push the public. But I think uh, you know we could have done a lot more back then. Let's let's go into a little more depth um, on the second topic you mentioned there, and that's the climate change. Um, what what are some of the facts on how climate is changing and how? climate change will affect different parts of the U.S. to kind of set the table. I think you sent us some slides, so if you want to point to any of those, we'll pull them up for you. Well, we could start with three just for kind of uh, making this personal. Uh, You know, climate change, I think, is being ignored, but it is going to affect all of us one way or the other. We can't go into a gated community or all move to Canada or whatever. Um, and so uh, when I uh, semi-retired and, and wanted to focus on uh, something that I thought would be useful and important, and I, and I looked at climate change as the biggie, um, you know, I looked at, you know, what, what could I do about it, uh, having some background knowledge and skills, and what could anybody do about it? Um, and you know, these are the facetious answers. Uh, you know, you can tell your kids, Oh, just stay inside, you know, (laughs) and don't, don't overheat and don't worry about the wildfire smoke and so on. Um, uh, or, you know, we don't, we can't do anything because it's too expensive. Well, um, uh, or it's not going to happen, you know, in, in, in the near future of our lifetime. And so we should just party. But, um, I, I decided that, um, you know, I had to, be honest with myself and say, what, what, cause I knew the facts. I saw the science. I said, what do I tell my children and grandchildren when they asked me, grandpa, what did you do about climate change? And so I, I couldn't plead ignorance. <laughs> yeah. So here's, so then I looked at the data and the next slide is the latest, just this last month from the latest uh, national climate assessment showing cooling degree days. And that's, uh, as probably most of your listeners know, that's a rough indicator of the need for uh, energy to cool buildings uh, based on a, a reference point of 65 degrees Fahrenheit. And you can see in all the, the red and pinkish areas that there's going to be a big increase in the need for cooling, and especially in the southern states, but even into the Midwest. And this is just for temperature. It doesn't adjust for humidity, which is a, a going to be a big issue too mm-hmm. and then by by late century um so mid-century is a thousand cooling degree days which is quite a bit it's enough to where if you don't have air conditioning you'll probably really need it by late century definitely a lot of areas are going to be over increases are going to be over 2,000 cooling degree days and then those blue boxes show that a lot of areas have persistent poverty and they can't probably afford to install or run air conditioning so it's, uh, they're going to be hit the worst. And um, so we, we have the, the climate model data that's uh, getting better and better, the projections. Um, we also look at the mortality on the next slide, and we see all these red and orange dots where there's going to be a very high risk of premature death. Um, and this national assessment estimated um, from heat and cold, but mostly heat, uh, up to 9,300 deaths per year across just 49 cities that they looked at, which is a third of the population. So hmm. you could say that's, that's just the tip of the iceberg. Um, and they estimated the cost of that is on the order of $150 billion per year in terms of evaluation. Uh, so there's economic and health uh, and uh, moral reasons to, to really try to address this problem. And in oh. California, we've seen, uh, even you know starker predictions for just looking at seniors in the metro areas. You know, just looking at this slide for the first time, Tom. I noticed a lot of it's in the Northeast. <laughs> Some down in Texas and Florida. I'm, I'm a little surprised there isn't more out in the in the Southwest. Is there? Can you explain why? Well, I haven't had a chance. I tried to dig into how they actually came up with these numbers. And, and, and it wasn't very accessible um, in, in the last few weeks. So what uh, my guess and in all likelihood is that in these Western states, they tend to have a high amount of uh, air conditioning or 
if they're on the coast, it's a milder climate and the heat waves aren't going to, heat impacts aren't going to be as severe. I, th I actually think though, from looking at the California specific data that I have at the bottom, they've probably underestimated the coastal impacts um, on in California. Um, now Phoenix, they have like, you know, 90 plus percent penetration of air conditioning. LA is just the flip. It's more like 10% or less. San Diego. Really? Yeah. Hmm. And so they're, they're kind of sitting ducks for heat waves. And we saw that in 2006, where over 106, over 100, 650 people died in California. Most of it was on the coast. Um, yeah. And um, part, so they're using epidemiology data, which is using outdoor temperature indicators. It's, it's not factoring in humidity, which is the big killer in some of the Southwest heat waves when you get the monsoonal moisture, which, you know, they're not used to. So anyway, that's, you know, there, this is not perfect, but I think gives you a rough idea that it's going to be across the country. It may be that there's a lot of older building stock and, and, and more vulnerable populations in the South and yeah, Southeast and, uh, in the Northeast. Uh, the Northeast, if you go to the next slide, uh, is showing the East Coast uh, heat wave proje projections from the University of Tennessee. And you can see that in the Southeast and the Northeast are the ones that are really going to get hammered. If you look at the far right, the big, there's, that, there's the big change. So the building, st building stock is not adapted to that very well, probably. Um, and the other thing in this study that was really interesting is that on top of this temperature, the humidity is going to go way up. So that by, I don't, it might have been mid-century, the Northeast is going to be getting hot and humid, similar to what the Southeast is now. And so you can go on Climate Central and they just map temperature changes and you can plug in your city and they'll show you where by the end of the century, for example, in Sacramento, you, they said by the end of the century, it'll draw an arrow down to Phoenix. And then so that's what your summer temperatures are going to be like. Wow. But, it, but and then you add, then you, in some areas, the humidity is going to amplify that. So that's Whoa. what the data and the modeling suggests. It's going to affect everybody. It's going to be big. Interesting. We've, uh, we've had a great deal of humidity now, you know, one year obviously doesn't make a trend, but, um, a lot of humidity, a lot of mold issues over the last year here, mm -hmm. both northeast and um, and in the southeast as well. I don't know. What about uh, how were things in California? Was it more dry this year, or was it? Uh, I think it was fairly dry. We didn't get those tropical, uh, moist tropical weather systems so much, uh, but they're projected to increase, and um, that. California study I showed before was looking at those type of weather systems. Um, and Scott Sheridan at Kent State and the Scripps Institute people have both uh, projected, you know, more of those hot and humid episodes that are the, the real killers, as well as the hot and dry episodes. Um, so, yeah, it's very seasonal. You know, you have the ocean temperatures uh, uh, heating up and those affect you know, those cause more stagnation and diversion of the jet stream. Um, so all of that varies from year to year, but the general trend I think is going to be more humid. I personally, I've experienced uh, a lot more warm, humid spells in the Northwest when I go up every summer to visit family in mm -hmm. Oregon and Seattle, you know, I'm just sweating <laughs> and they don't have much air conditioning. So, um, you know, they're, they're, uh, I think they were in a denial for a long time, but in the last few years between those hot spells and the wildfires, I think they're getting religion. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about the metrics, uh, and what, what are called overheating metrics. And if you could talk to listeners a little bit about what is the discomfort index and uh, wet wet global temperature. Yeah. Let's, um, go to slide, uh, nine and basically there's a whole slew of metrics that are being used and and um it's it's a real evolving area because these metrics ideally are trying to mimic the body's response 
to different kinds of uh, stressors that affect our uh, not our perceived uh, or felt reaction to heat, but how our body actually starts being affected physiologically. And, uh, uh, and it's not necessarily linear either, but uh, the examples I have here are the discomfort index, which is fairly widely used, which is just simply kind of an average of the wet and dry bulb temperatures. And there's a scale there that's just a rough indicator of, you know, how bad it can be. And, um, and so a lot of people in the literature are using that because it's, it's very easy to use um, to get those, those, um, those data. Wet bulb globe temperature is one of the few that has uh, some physiological basis, um, uh, mainly from some early studies of army soldiers uh, carrying, you know, packs under hot and humid conditions and so on. Mm-hmm. And that one includes not only the dry and wet bulb temperature, but also the, the black globe or radiant temperature, um, which uh, can be very important in indoor environments or if you're out in, in the direct sun. Um, and the problem is that it's not easy to measure, although there are some low-cost sensors under development uh, to do that, which um, sense infrared and can do like a 3D scan of the room. Um, but anyway, that one, um, you know, to measure it with a research level instrument costs several thousand, I think, but there are some instruments in the works that might cost a couple hundred. Um, there's ASHRAE uses something called the standard effective temperature, which uh, uses temperature and humidity and, and maybe one other factor. I don't remember. I always have to look these up because there's so many. And sometimes you'll see apparent temperature, operative temperature, um, and all of them use temperature and humidity and sometimes some other factors. Um, the good news is that you can get radiant temperature uh, values from a lot of energy models, or you can do a calculation to produce that based on air pressure and other things. So uh, that's uh, fairly doable when you're trying to model energy and indoor thermal conditions. Um, so that's, uh, I think, a real promising uh, approach. Um, I should mention that there's a lot of guidelines out there already. Uh, some are, you know, fairly simplistic, just using temperature. If you go to slide 10, a lot of your viewers might know about the Passive House Program, where they have a 25 centigree ceiling, and, and they shoot for 10% uh, or less hours per year, and practitioners are using more like 5%. And then there's some UK guidelines for overheating that are more stringent, I think. And then they even have a design guideline to factor in the the difference in the urban heat island effect in big mm-hmm. metro areas like London, because you can plug in different you know temperature weather files for those to reflect that urban heat island effect and that because you know your energy use is going to depend on that so you should model for it before i go on to the next question cliff did you have any questions or comments you wanted to add no um not yet joe i'm good okay let's let's go to um talk a little bit about you know i think everybody's familiar with heat stress heat stroke death i mean these are the extreme effects of of overheating uh, but prior to getting to that point is, I think, more along the lines of where we, we end up with dealing with, with indoor environmental quality issues. Can you talk a little bit about the heat-related issues that occur and, and the health effects from them or the performance effects from heat-related issues prior to getting to the level where we're up to heat stress? Yeah, uh, just briefly, I've... Um always have to look at it, look it up because it's confusing to me sometimes all uh, the heat exhaustion, heat stress stuff. I think it's basically, uh, you know, kind of a continuum and it, and it of course is, depends on the individual, how sensitive they are to the heat and how long and how often they're exposed. And we're just starting to learn about those kinds of variables, how important they are. And so that's part of the problem with metrics. You know, if you just take, Uh, an average, you know, that may not reflect the peak exposures that are going to really affect people. Or is it a cumulative thing where if you get a day after day, does it start to affect you? Um, 
uh, just anecdotally, I would say is it was kind of funny when I started working at home. Uh, I was trying not to use the air conditioner a lot because I was trying to save energy because we didn't have to use it before when we were commuting to work. Well, that quickly, you know, started to make me a little fuzzy and lightheaded, I guess, when I was baking in my own home. And I thought, well, this, you know, I'm going to have to do something about this. But um, the the point is that there are now a growing body of evidence that um, uh, even moderate heat levels can affect our productivity and performance of healthy people. Uh, for example, um, I think Harvard Joseph Allen and, and John Spengler and those folks have some good data on knowledge workers where their productivity on complex tasks uh, really dropped off as the, the indoor temperatures increased in an office type environment. Um, and I think there's a fair amount of literature, maybe mostly from Europe that's older that sees similar things. Um, I should also mention, just to back up a minute, that we know that what is called thermal comfort or kind of indoor heat stress also affects the way we respond to and perceive other air pollutants. It can increase the irritant effects, for example. It might also uh, increase, uh, you know, some other respiratory effects. Uh, we don't really know, maybe, but... Uh, but to get to um, back to the data, the exciting things that have come out lately are on students. Um, there was a college student study in dorms during a heat wave where some had air conditioning, some didn't, and they saw a significant change in their test results. Um, there's a big national study that just came out looking at high school students that took the PSAT exam, and they looked at a parent temperature uh, on the days they took the test, which in factors in humidity and temperature. And they saw uh, some very significant differences depending on the temperature uh, and, uh, when they looked at the test results. They also saw big regional and big uh, ethnicity differences. Uh, hmm. So the, the scary part, not scary, but alarming maybe, is that the size and the differences they saw are sim similar in magnitude to the test results differences between say uh, low income and high income people, uh, students, which is big, which is already a big political right. social issue. Mm -hmm. So, so, and, and if you just do a Google alert on overheating in schools, um, you'll get uh, a fairly steady, dose of that starting in August maybe <laughs> and going through the fall and starting up in the spring and you also see it around the world now but all around the country I've seen it more and more uh, even in say milder coastal areas like LA and uh, so they have to send students home early they have to close down schools there's big economic there's big learning effects uh, productivity effects and then we're not even talking about the teachers because they're you know, they're getting exposed too, and they're not protected very well by occupational health standards because uh, they tend to be more stringent for, you know, designed for healthy people. But um, in any case, that's um, kind of the, the, the database is getting much better. Uh, we also know um, that if you're looking at a more extreme effects, that they're not linear, um, that hmm. uh, the curve, really swings upward pretty quickly. And I don't have that slide handy, but the study by Groenland always kind of impresses me because you'll see this um, kind of flat curve in the mid 20 centigrade levels. And all of a sudden in the early to mid twenties, it starts going up. If you look at respiratory, cardiovascular or kidney renal effects and so on. Hmm. And that, then all of a sudden, depending on which city you're at, cause they did several cities, um, looking just outdoor temperatures and humidity, all of a sudden, somewhere in the mid twenties, it really starts shooting up, um, and uh, uh, that has implications for also, you know, how you design your heat warning systems and so on, which tend to not be very protective because you see a lot of emergency calls well before the heat warning systems kick in. Hmm. 
Well, Tom, let's let's talk a little bit about uh, what what is time dependent value energy, and why is that becoming important or more important as we you know get further down the road here with uh, temperature change and climate change. Yeah. Well, uh, if you look at slide eight, the the uh, picture on the the middle right shows the time of day and how the price can vary by time of day. So uh, a lot of, a lot of the country uh, has what they call time of use rates where your utility rates for electricity vary throughout the day and the week, depending on how much demand there is for the system. Uh, And some areas may not have it, but I think it was just reading where more and more States are moving that way. Um, And, uh, in this picture, for example, for uh, a cooling-dominated climate where people come home from work and all of a sudden have to crank up their air conditioner and their, all their uh, utilities and toys and whatever, or charge their electric vehicle, uh, all of a sudden the demand goes way up, but, but so does the cost. So uh, this is sometimes called the duck curve because when you step back, it looks a little bit like a duck um, some people might in Texas might call it the armadillo curve or whatever. <laughs> then I just learned that say in Tennessee, they have a double hump curve. They have in the winter, their big electric peak is early in the morning when people get up and in the evening when they have to eat, cause they have mostly electric resistance heating. Whereas in the West, we have a lot of, of gas fired heating, at least for now. Now, if we move, more and more to heat pumps that changes this curve as well. So there's a lot of things, you know, that are going to be changing in our infrastructure and our power system and our, and our pricing. So the, the reason it's important besides cause is that um, a lot of the peak demand has to be met by gas fired or other fossil fuel power plants, which put out a lot of carbon and air pollution. And that's something that we need to minimize and, uh, and zero out as much as we can. Um, and so actually California is moving in the next generation of building standards and over the next three years is going to move to a carbon based metric, which reflects not cost per se, but those, carbon emissions from the peak power plants and so on. Cause that's our net net key goal right now. Okay. Uh, Tom, I think it's a good time to take a little break. Thank our sponsors. When we come back, I want to talk about the, uh, the other effects that the climate change uh, has uh, the other effects that can result from climate change. Um, there's a, a, a bunch of them and uh, many of them affect the indoor environment. So we'll be back in uh, 60 seconds with our guest, Tom Phillips. IAQ Radio Platinum sponsor is John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Gold sponsors are Particles Plus Engineers and Manufacturers, a feature-rich particle counters and air quality monitoring instrumentation. Learn more at ParticlesPlus.com. Count on us. Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions available at HealthyIndoors.com. And AEML Laboratories, free FedEx shipping, great pricing, same-day results, and never a rush fee. Learn more at AEMLinc.com. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at WolfSense.com. Association sponsors are the Indoor Air Quality Association, a multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Learn more at iaqa.org and RIA, the Restoration Industry Association, the granddaddy of the restoration industry. Network with leaders. Learn more at restorationindustry.org. All right, we're back for the second half of our interview. It just, I just thought about this, too. This is our last show for uh, 2018 here, and uh, I want to you know, shout out to the sponsors. Thank you again. Uh, we couldn't do the show without you. 
Uh, and we really appreciate your support. Let's let's get back to our interview with Tom Phillips. Tom, you know, we were talking before the break a little bit about uh, some of the other effects that that occur as climate changes. Uh, I've got a list of them here. You've got you know heat, uh, wildfires, outdoor air pollution. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that and and how you see those changes um, maybe? In, I don't know if they're, I guess they're going to be increasing. The, 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 the change may increase over time, but you tell me. Well, I, th- I think in general, um, all these extreme events are going to be, become more and more common. If you, if you say, looked at a, uh, a bell curve um, of how often all these things happen, and, and the average is going to shift towards the right, but more importantly, these extreme events are also going to, um, fall more and more under the curve or that part of the curve is going to get bigger. Uh, and so uh, in many parts of the country and now even places like Scandinavia, they're having wildfires, you know, mm-hmm. uh, or the Olympic national forest, which, you know, is usually so wet, nothing burns. Um, so uh, those things are definitely going to become more common. Heat is going to become more and more intensive and, and heat waves will be longer and more, more frequent. Uh, um, and so uh, on, what that means in terms of human exposure and health is that uh, we won't be able to spend as much time outdoors. Um, so you're going to be getting more indoor exposure and also, it'll be harder, say, to have an active lifestyle, which is, has a big public health impact if you want people to be biking and walking and so on or out gardening or whatever and socializing. That's going to be harder and harder to do. Um, and, and it's a bit, um, I don't want to say cataclysmic or dystopian, but it's very depressing. So there's mental health issues that are becoming pretty well recognized, too. Um, and uh, I, I, I think, um, and, and on top of that, there's issues like biological vectors. I mean, even in the last several years, we've had to worry about things like um, West Nile virus, and in your part of the country, ticks. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and so all these things affect your lifestyle and your health and, and your mental health and your activities and so on, and your quality of life. Um, and... Uh, some of this um, falls under the issue of, of cascading effects or perfect storms where, uh, you know, we've, we've been fairly lucky that a lot of things, these things don't happen all at the same time. Um, for example, these, the big wildfires that we had in November, if those had happened in the summer on top of major typical outdoor pollution levels and heat waves, we probably would have seen uh, pretty high more t- uh, death rates and hospitalization rates. Um, and I, I heard from a colleague that with the Houston hurricane this last year, uh, they were studying a bunch of uh, rest homes, care homes, and the power was out. Mm-hmm. And uh, they had this tremendous amount of humidity and heat. Uh, luckily, there was cloud cover. But once the cloud cover disappeared, it started heating up and uh, building up the humidity. And if they had gone a few more days without power, they would have been filling the emergency rooms and hospitals, probably. Hmm. Um, the uh, Anecdotally, <laughs> years ago when my kids were playing youth soccer, uh, they were playing, you know, in, in August or September, a big tournament. And we, we parents were putting on the tournament. And there was a big um, wildfire, I think, in Yosemite that was filling the, the Central Valley with smoke, and it was high ozone alert days. So just for ozone alone, we were worried about the kids' health, especially if they had asthma. And then on top of this um, were the wildfires. And CARB and others had been trying to figure out for years how to adjust the air quality index and health warnings to address these multiple effects, but nobody's really done that yet. And at that time we were kind of on our own. So all we could do was advise the parents to say, if your kid has a respiratory problem, you should probably set them out. Hmm. 
I know we when we talked earlier, you mentioned Valley Fever. I didn't know if there was anything specific related to this or uh, that, or whether that's you, it seems to be occurring more commonly. It it is uh, growing uh, and spreading uh, into more areas in the Southwest. The last time I looked at it a year or two ago, and I think there's a CDC tracker and there's a Southwest Southwestern group that tracks this. Uh, it was they're starting to see a lot more in the LA area. Now, it also might be artificially suppressed because there's been less new home construction and earth moving and things like that that, that disturbed that. But I think um, the the drought may exacerbate it exacerbate it in other ways in terms of creating more windblown dust episodes because some of the worst valley fever episodes were people just driving up to Central Valley on I-5 and got into these big dust storms and got infected. Hmm. Um, so, uh, and then a fr- uh, some friends of mine were just tearing out their lawn to put in native landscaping and save water. And they didn't wet it down apparently. And so they were getting a lot of dust exposure and they both nearly died. It took them a while to get diagnosed properly. But, wow. um, and I don't know if they've had major symptoms afterwards because it can be very debilitating if it doesn't kill you. But um, in any case, that's something that is not really an indoor hazard per se, but you know, it it's just a whole panoply of things. These, these uh, biological vectors as well as the insect borne diseases are increasing. Um, so that's going to put a strain on, our lifestyle on the public health system and so on. You know, we were talking earlier about effects of heat on people. And uh, one thing we didn't talk about was sleep. And I know there's been more research and uh, interest in, in sleep and how it affects health. And I'm wondering if you have any uh, information to add on how, how the climate change and heat are, are or will be affecting sleep. Uh, well, just real briefly, I would say that um, it's going to make it harder to sleep. Um, we know that uh, during heat waves, um, the the in the nighttime temperatures often stay elevated, and and it makes it harder for the body to recover from the heat stress during the day. Um, and you know, say especially if you're getting high exposures outdoors, and you try to come indoors to recover. Uh, you uh, are going to have problems sleeping, especially if you don't have good uh, cooling system or whatever. Uh, we we know from uh, a recent research, I think, is really starting to highlight and look into how important sleep is. Um, I think there's a whole National Geographic article of, uh, issue about it this year. Uh, there's a good review article in psychology today and so on. And it affects um, mental health in, in several ways, but also our immune system. And, and then the, the uh, secondary effects on things like the cardiovascular system. So it can actually, I think be a fairly you know, important environmental health risk factor. That's going to become more and more important. And um, it, I have to laugh a bit because, you know, being in my sixties, um, I've had to start, you know, uh, dealing with periodic sleep problems, just normal aging process. But some of my friends have very severe health pro- sleep problems. So on, if you add heat stress effects on sleep quality on top of that, you know, we could really be pushing a lot of people over the edge. Um, uh, and, you know, that may have been part of the reason why back in 1911 or so, on the in uh, the northeast they saw a big heat wave and they saw a big spike in um uh suicides uh, <laughs> and uh and i think you know even today you, there may be some studies showing that uh increases in suicide and violence and things like that during heat waves um so that's that's what's happening with sleep it's a it's a big area. And also uh, um, with climate change, the nighttime temperatures are warming faster than the daytime temperatures are. Um, yeah. That's what you had mentioned earlier. Uh, 
in our conversation before. I, you know, we talked a little bit about wildfires, and I, I purposely saved some time here to talk a little bit more about the wildfires and the, the um, indoor air quality problems that result from these wildfires. But first, maybe you could talk a little bit about the, the guidance that you helped develop at CARB on wildfires, um, you know, because it's a real common problem in your area, and California obviously has a lot of issues with wildfires. First, tell us a little bit about that guidance and a couple key points. Sure. Um, I actually probably had a small part in that just to kind of reiterate what we'd already been recommending uh, in, in terms of uh, reducing indoor pollutant sources and sealing up your building uh, to keep the outdoor pollutants out. Uh, and then um, uh, and then using an, a, a HEPA-type air cleaner, as preferably, say, in a small space where it would be effective. Um, and uh, for people with medical conditions, it was also very important to have, make sure you had all your medicines and your, your uh, work with your physician to have a, a plan to, you know, when to evacuate and, and uh, have access to healthcare if you needed it. Um, and it's obviously gotten a lot of attention when I was traveling recently, you know, a lot of people were asking me, how are the wildfires and was I affected? And, you know, uh, even though it's you know, hundred miles away, it really uh, caused a lot of building closures in the Sacramento area, uh, schools and universities and businesses. And they were getting a fair amount of infiltra- infiltration of, um, of, of wildfire smoke. Um, luckily we didn't, I think partly because our house is fairly tight. Um, and also we were out of town the first two days when it was really bad. And we didn't also have to run our central air too much, which might've pulled in some smoke. Um, I did check my central air filter and it was not dirty or unusual, although I had a friend in town say theirs was. So, uh, maybe their house is leakier or maybe they just use their system a lot more. But also, you know, upgrading your central air filter could help. Uh, probably one thing I would add maybe that, you know, we're learning this as we go is uh, there's probably a lot of fine ash and dust that gets sucked in and tracked in, and that um, could be a problem down the line. So it's probably good to do some good house cleaning after the wildfire episodes. Maybe even, maybe not during it because you would just stir it up, but Certainly, you know, change your filter, do some major uh, deep carpet cleaning and surface cleaning and try to get rid of all that dust and, and ash buildup and so on. Um, the One issue I think that's tricky about all this is that there are some strong irritants and pollutants that are gases that the filtration and dust mass don't address or, you know, protect you from. Um and if you're fairly near a fire, that can be a, a big exposure and potential health risk. And we know that some of these fires, you know, depending on what building materials are burning up and what type of trees are burning up can be very irritating and toxic. So um, there are studies going on now to look at some of this, like at um, Colorado, University of Colorado Boulder, and um, I'm trying to remember where else, some EPA studies are looking at this, maybe Brent Stevens to see how well weatherization and other strategies can protect us from wildfire smoke and probably other outdoor pollutants. There's, there's some, uh, as I understand it, a little misunderstanding about wildfires and, and soot and smoke, et cetera. And, and I wonder if you could touch on that. I'm not sure what you're referring to. Maybe it was when we were talking about the focus on PM particles yeah, there's also gases, but I, I guess yeah. also on uh, the use of air filtration uh, uh-huh. and, and portable air filters. Yeah. Uh, I think people may rely on those a little more than uh, than than would be wise, I guess. And there may be other right. strategies that would help more. Well, I think we need a combination of strategies in many cases to deal with these these types of environmental problems. And usually the most effective strategy is cutting it off at the source, you know, keeping the horse in the barn, or maybe a better analogy is keeping the yellow jackets in the nest. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. horse, horses don't hurt you, but yellow jackets do. And I learned that the hard way recently. <laughs> oh. um, but 
the point is that say for diesel uh, smoke or wildfire smoke or carbon monoxide, whatever from the outdoors, uh, if you can keep it out of the building, because that's the source pathway is through your building. If the, if you can seal it up or seal up the radon coming th- through your foundation, that's the best bang for the buck and the most reliable solution. And then then you go to the secondary solutions like air cleaning um, and so on. And those uh, can be effective in some cases, but it also depends on the human operator, and that's often the weak link because they don't change the filter or they don't like the noisy air cleaner and they turn it off or whatever. So, um, And a lot of the air pollutants, you can't see or smell, so you don't necessarily know, um, you know when you should be operating it. Uh, now, uh, the good news is that these low-cost sensors are are becoming more and more popular and better and better. They're not all great. Some are not so good, but it also, it gives one at least an idea on a relative scale, maybe how bad the particles are. The gas sensors, I think are still under development. Um, And there's a lot of work in Europe going on on that. Uh, And they're actually looking at trying to control uh, building a ventilation system, commercial buildings to save energy and still keep air healthy. So, um, you know, when we rely on technology, we can sometimes be over-reliant on it or um, assume that it's going to repair itself. <laughs> mm-hmm. so, um, anyway, that's that's the pitfall of any technology, I think, is, you know, realizing that you have to look at things as a system, and that system should include the human operators. Cliff, anything you'd like to add or any follow-up? Um, I, I think that really my, my only one question I, I think that I, I've been wondering all, all along is sometimes when we do things, there are unexpected consequences. And I, I was just wondering if you had an example of an unintended consequence uh, you know, that you didn't expect. Um. I'm trying to think. <laughs> well, I think the the classic one um, is in the indoor field is probably, you know, just tightening up homes without thinking of the home as a system. Um, and uh, I th- let's see, if we go to the slides... Um, IQ radio. Um, That's perfect because I was just kind of moving into how we can change our buildings, you know, what design and, and, and uh, building techniques we can use to mitigate some of these issues you're talking about. Uh, Well, 24, the last slide um, is a study from 2013 where they did, uh, weatherization because a big concern is about liability and tightening homes up too much. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then you have to put in mechanical ventilation to avoid major indoor pollution problems. Um, And I think um, this, this became a a problem and kind of a pushback in Britain uh, and UK when they tried to go to a real low carbon building standard and also do a lot of retrofits because that's where most of the carbon is, is in existing buildings. Um, and I wouldn't say this is an unintended consequence. I would just say that it wasn't well executed and thought out. <laughs> and so maybe that's a better way to look at problems uh, where they started requiring uh, air sealing and insulation and, and, and HRVs, and there they call them mechanical ventilated heat recoveries. Um, and they quickly ran into uh, mold and moisture problems. And, mm. But that goes back to the need to look at the system and the sources. And so they clearly weren't controlling the moisture sources or factoring that moisture dynamics in and preventing it from building up, uh, say, on the masonry walls, which are, pro- which are tricky to deal with. Or the other problem was that they weren't uh, training the installers to ins- install the system properly, and they weren't training the occupants to operate it properly. So they kind of shot themselves in both feet and their hands, I guess. <laughs> a 
Okay. <laughs> um, and, they, and they got bad PR, you know, and those were all foreseeable problems. Um, and so, um, but this slide shows that uh, you can save a lot of money by weatherizing. If you uh, look at the blue circle, you get uh, benefits. Um, uh, uh, I'm sorry, that's actually, that's actually a cost to weatherize. But if you go in at the same time uh, and address the indoor sources and the asthma triggers and include rain-to-hood fans and things like that to keep particles and gases down from your gas stoves and electric, you get actual health benefits that counter that. You end up with a net savings on costs for asthma. When This was a modeling stunt study done for low-income multifamily. Uh, so if you package these things together, you can get net benefits and savings on the health costs, as well as saving energy and carbon, things like that. Um, so um, in terms of unintended consequences, um, I would say it's more a matter of not thinking it through and implementing it and looking at things as an integrated health plus energy plus climate adaptation. I think you, you've mentioned a few times there's the human factor and, and human behavior. We, we can't uh, force people to change their filters, to, to turn on their uh, exhaust over their, you know, when they're cooking, um, things like that. So that human factor is, is really tough to build into these types of programs. Yeah, there is some work that DOE is funding, Building America, and maybe some other manufacturers to, to uh, look at uh, – automatic sensors that turn on the range hood fan. And if it's a quiet fan, then people won't try to override it. So that's the other key factor that we and others have recommended for years. And there are some quieter fans out there that are also more effective at capturing the pollutants. Um, is, uh, I think years ago at CARB, we recommended, you know, looking at automatic sensors. And I actually bought one when I did re my remodel in 92 and at that time, there was a range hood that had a heat sensor in it. Uh, but <laughs> ironically, uh, well, they took it off the market because it wasn't selling. But also, my wife didn't like that hood because it didn't quite uh, fit flush with the cabinets because we hadn't realized that this hood was deeper, which is good. But she didn't like the way it looked. <laughs> yep. That's so a human <laughs> so now, so now uh, fast forward from 92 to 2018, and we're we're back again trying to develop sensors that will hopefully not be too, um, you know, easy to tamper with or whatever, but uh, it's part of that, you know, necessary systems approach. Um, if you go to slide uh, 19, there's just a reminder that there's all these different pollutant factors. Um, are you getting an echo? There you go. I'm not. No. Okay, I am. I was. Okay. Um, if you look at this, this, this circles of circles and so on of all the different pollutant factors from the sources to ventilation, air cleaning, and removal, all the way up through laws, regulations, policies, economics, and so on. At every point there, there's a human decision that's made, you know, to install that system, design it, to operate it to develop a regulation or to, and to implement it or not. So the point is that we always, there's, those are often the points of failure that we have to always try to get human feedback and input on. And we may not get it right the first time, but you know, hopefully by the second or third time we will. Um, the next slide is kind of the, the worst case where you have Bart Simpson operating your local power plant, <laughs> your, nucle your nuclear power plant, your nuclear power plant. Tom, we're running a little low on time. I wanted to, before you go, I wanted to mention Roxas, uh, reducing outdoor contaminants in indoor spaces. Actually, um, I, I, I got the idea to get you on the show from, uh, looking at some information on their website and talking to Linda Wigington, who we've had on the show. I know you're an advisor for that group. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about uh, your thoughts on the importance of what they are doing. Well, I, th I think uh, it's really encouraging and exciting that they're working with a lot of community and stakeholder groups to actually try out 
different approaches um, based on, you know, good science and what's out there and then trying to develop some information on their own um, and using uh, different technological approaches and looking at the, the, ener- the energy and cost issues as well. Um, and so you can go to their website and find a lot of good information and it's being updated. Um, in your region, they're, you know, recruiting volunteers all the time to participate in these little kind of pilot studies to try out different air cleaning approaches and, and range hood retrofits and things like that. And I think the latest one is to look at, uh, some new and improved, uh, range hoods. Uh, so that, that's gonna, that, uh, could be very promising and, um, and just just to put it in perspective, this uh, the original white papers that Don Fugler and I did were looking not just at Southwest Pennsylvania, where they have all these outdoor pollution problems and mold and radon and fracking and so on, but to look at North America because when we step back and look at it, those kind of problems are pretty common across North America. Um, yeah you know, especially say in, in the urban areas, but even some rural areas. Uh, so a lot of the stuff that Rockus is doing to address intrusion of outdoor pollutants is relevant to the rest of North America and probably the developed world. So I think also people oftentimes think of indoor pollutants all being generated indoors and, and a lot more of indoor pollution comes from outdoors. And while we're talking about climate change and wildfires and all those things, I think rock is really does a great job of pointing out that, you know, a lot of our indoor pollution is stuff that we're sucking into our buildings all day, every day. Yeah. Well, there's one study that we, we, found a small study from Denmark where they put a personal monitor on somebody to measure black carbon throughout the day as they were commuting to work and working in an office. Uh, the, the black carbon was an indicator of diesel exposure. The, the peak short-term exposures were driven, no pun intended, but when they were commuting, you know, on public transit or biking or whatever near traffic. But when you average that out over the day, most of it, the bulk of it was coming from exposures at work and some at home. Hmm. And for a car- carcinogen, it's the long-term exposures that we tend to be most worried about, the, the cumulative exposures and your, your risk for you know, certain cells and tissues being uh, uh, overloaded or affected by a carcinogen. Tom, I know um, you've got another appointment to go to, an important family one, I'm sure. Uh, but before we go, we always like to get the, uh, the last question is uh, always the same. Uh, is there anything you'd like to add, anything we missed, any final thoughts for listeners? Uh, well, I would say that uh, whenever you have a planning project or, or other opportunity to factor in climate change adaptation, in other words, think, what's this building going to be doing over the next 1,500 years? What can I build into it now to handle the higher uh, cooling load? Can I do better job on external shading and insulation and things like that? Because it often doesn't cost too much. And if you actually crunch the numbers over 50 years or whatever, it starts to make economic sense. And you can sell that to the client or to your own well-being and then those houses will have a higher market value um and i would point them to things um like the lead pilot credit for and uh, some other guidelines that i have i think in here somewhere um california is starting to factor in future climate to the building standards so all this stuff is starting to happen so we can actually design buildings um but we need to do it now. We should have been doing it 20 years ago, but we need to be super aggressive now. We also need to look at community scale things where you can perhaps do microgrids uh, and better low, low carbon transportation connections and reduce dependent on uh, vehicles and fossil fuel. So um, just keep, uh, keep your eye on the ball for climate adaptation. That's what, what it means. And then, try to translate that into health and comfort uh, for your market or client or your family. Tom, thank you. Uh, This is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks to this week's guest, Tom Phillips. Thanks again. It was a pleasure 
talking to you today and getting to know you a little bit better before the show. Uh, I think you, you have a lot of great information for our listeners, and um, I, I like the way you finished it up here, Tom. I also want to thank my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. He'll be putting a blog together for this week's show. We'll get that out to you next Thursday. And uh, at the controls, John, you got to have faith. Uh, most importantly, our growing group of loyal listeners, we're going to take a couple weeks off for uh, the holidays here. We'll be back January 4th. I'm working on a great show for you January 4th. In the meantime, I hope everyone has a great holiday season. And uh, join, us, uh, join us again on January 4th for the next episode of IAQ Radio. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reed saying thanks for listening. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.